I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. As an artist and activist, Betty Yu has spent her career focusing on the community around her, Sunset Park, Brooklyn, where she was born and raised. Whether it was as a member of the Chinatown Arts Brigade, engaging art galleries on their role in gentrification, or projecting tenants' life stories on the sides of buildings slated for redevelopment, Yu's work has stressed the connection between art and social change. But what happens when COVID-19 makes interacting with your neighbors life-threatening? Betty Yu, who first began turning the camera on her parents' family life in 2019, joins us on the podcast to talk about getting even more personal during the pandemic. Thanks so much for talking to me, Betty. Of course. Happy to be here. So I wanted to start by talking about the photograph we ran in our last issue, which is called Dad, Still Quiet and Daydreaming. And what struck me most about it is that it was taken before the pandemic, but it conveys such a strong sense of social isolation already. Uh, We have a link to it in the show notes, but for listeners who haven't had a chance to look at it yet, it is a photograph of your dad sitting on his bed with his back to the camera, staring out the window with this kind of soft sepia light coming into the room. So what were you trying to convey with this photograph? It's interesting. A lot of the photos I've taken of my dad have very much been in isolation. Um, And my mother, too. And they live in the same small apartment in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. But I really wanted to capture the psychological isolation as well as the um, physical isolation. Um, In many ways, I would say that my parents have been socially isolating from each other for like over 30 years. And they've been together for about 50. Um, But I say that because... um, I think a lot of the isolation they felt from each other and from society really has a lot to do with the economics. So they both were like garment workers working really long hours um, and retired recently. Um, And my dad, particularly, who is in his early 80s now, he would tell all of us, like, I can't wait till the day I can just literally sit still and not have to, you know, rush to work at, you know, eight in the morning and work 15 hours and then come back and um, and then start over again. Um, and I didn't quite understand why, you know, as a, as a younger person, when he would tell us this, 
Um, you know, we all thought that, uh, yeah, he would want to, you know, I mean, we, we grew up pretty low income working class, but that he would want to travel locally or, you know, do, you know, do some other things or, or socialize. And I realized that what capitalism does, right? What like working in a garment sweatshop does is that it does create this social alienation, this kind of alienation from others. Um, he was working as a button operator. So he's partially deaf now because for 30 years, he was like constantly putting buttons on, um, you know, on clothing and on pants and things. And so it was very loud. They don't have any protective gear. And so um, looking back, I'm realizing he didn't really make a lot of friends because the boss was right there uh, breathing down your neck. So you really couldn't socialize. And so years later, and I see him and I literally, anytime I go visit my parents and as of late, not as much because of COVID, that is a position he's in. Sitting on the bed, looking out, you know, he was just like, "This is my most comfortable and position, and I'm at peace." Um, and this is what I was longing for. He's like, "I told you guys, I was waiting for this moment where I could sit still, read a newspaper, drink my coffee, maybe take a walk down the block." Um, and I think that that captures a lot of what we're all feeling right now, especially at the beginning of COVID. I'm like, "Huh." That was like me, you know, for a while when I was like inside looking out my window, making no contact. And so my dad had already been doing that for a really long time from my mom, from society. But there's also massive gentrification happening in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Um, and they don't know if they're going to be able to stay in, in this house. And since they've been retired, obviously, um, they're on fixed incomes. Um, and like I said, you know, they were, their wages weren't very high to begin with. So their social security is not a lot. And so there's a real threat of displacement because condos are literally going up on their block. Real estate value and all this has like quadrupled or even more over the last couple of years. And so, um, that photo is a part of a larger series of how gentrification is impacting me personally and my family personally. Has the course of the project displaced in Sunset Park changed as a result of the pandemic? I mean, it seems like it seems like your dad's practice hasn't really changed at all, but I imagine yours might have as an artist. Yeah, exactly. My dad. It's funny. My dad's life is like he's like, oh, this is what I've been doing um, since he's retired, like over ten years ago. Um, so, so yeah, my practice has changed a lot. My work is very, very much community based, and in this, it's very. Um, special to me, this aspect of the larger project called Display, Displace in Sunset Park, because it's a f sort of a photographic kind of personal diary, um, starting with my parents' block and all the condos that are going up. And then the pandemic hit. And so it really threw me for a loop because what I was going to do was talk to community members, uh, small business owners, workers and teachers and folks who, from different angles, looking at gentrification in the Latinx and the Chinatown, Chinese part, and many of the people gentrifying the neighborhood look like me. They're, they're Chinese developers from China as well as domestic uh, developers. But anyway, it all changed literally overnight and my mom uh, became the photographer quite literally. I didn't know what would become of the project, but I had to shift it very quickly. So I figured, okay, I'm going to create this interactive experience. And so you get to see what the pandemic is like through my parents' eyes who are both elder and in one of the epicenters of New York City in terms of the pandemic. And so she would go really early in the morning um, for walks and take photos. Um, and it was very hard because I hadn't seen, I literally didn't see my parents for six or seven months, I think. Um, and the first time I saw them, I wanted to hug them. We were out in the park, but even then I was, we couldn't, we couldn't really, 
interact. And um, for that six months, it was all FaceTime. Um, luckily, I had a whole archive of, of photographs from my grand my grandfather, who was actually an amateur photographer. He was actually a labor organizer in Chinatown. I found out all of this really pretty much like in the last 10 years, and he had died in the 80s. And I was so fascinated with it. I said, what a, there's no better time than now to look back at those archives because I have nothing else better to do. So I started really like investigating the archive. And, you know, he was one of the founders of the first Chinese labor organization that existed in, in that started in 1920, no, 1934 of hand laundry workers. And of course, the hand laundry business was the only business really that Chinese folks could work in because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? And there was all this discrimination. So they couldn't really do much. And so he was actually one who's like the rabble rouser, organizing workers. And so I started to put all this together and realizing that the discrimination and the xenophobia that Chinese faced over a hundred years ago, hundred and 40 years ago is very similar to the xenophobia now against Chinese Americans or Chinese, right? Saying slurs in my face, right? Because the way I look, right? Especially early on during the pandemic. Um, And these Chinatowns that were already really hit hard are struggling and businesses have shut down and all this stuff. So anyway, I started to um, uh, create this immersive interactive experience through my mom's photographs, through my own archival research and connecting the present to the past and and actually drawing the very similar connections to migration, to xenophobia, um, and helped me get a little bit more personal and come full circle with a lot of the trauma I think a lot of immigrants face where, um, I mean, I was born here, but my family in particular has been in the United States for four generations, but they couldn't actually stay here consistently because of rampant discrimination. They had to go back to China and then, you know, another round of people come. And so, there's trauma attached, but there's also a sense of resiliency attached to that, to, to seeing um, the through line of my family's narrative, which is very representative of other immigrant experiences in this country. Um, so I would say that I try to use the time of isolation to really look inward because I often didn't do that. It was a lot of my work has been very like outwardly facing in the community. So it was a good opportunity to check in with myself, I guess. Yeah, it makes sense that it would be difficult to balance telling your personal story with the stories of all of these other people in the community, especially when something like displacement or gentrification is such a contradictory phenomenon, right? Because it's so individual and so personal, but it rarely happens in isolation. So it's also collective. Can you talk about your work addressing gentrification with the Chinatown Arts Brigade, especially your collaboration with the Chinatown Tenants Union? Yeah, no, um, thank you for asking me about Chinatown Art Brigade. Um, that particular collective, when we founded it in 2015, the two other co-founders, Tamiya Rai and Mansi Kong, have been involved in various um, on various levels with uh, CAV, Chinatown Tenants Union, and various aspects of their work, whether it was the racial justice work, um, different aspects. And they had, had come to a point, um, um, the CTU, Chinatown Tenants Union, has been around since 9-11. After 9-11, um, they formed to fight the massive evictions that were happening because, as you know, Chinatown is, you know, 15 blocks away from ground zero. And so um, that gave real estate developers a chance to really gentrify and displace people out of that area. And so they were, Chinatown tenants were facing evictions, so they formed. But anyway, in 2015, they reached out to us and said, you know, we, we know what we're, we're good at, right? Like canvassing and organizing and door knocking and all this kind of, you know, grassroots organizing, but we really want to 
um, you know, collaborate with artists, community-based artists who can help elevate the stories and highlight not just the the resilience, but the resistance. And oftentimes what we see out there is like sort of passive victims, um, whether it's working conditions or living conditions, but that people are actually fighting back. And so we collaborated with them on their ask, right? They approached us and we formed this collective. We had no idea how amazing the response would be from the community as well as outside the community. And we wanted to also, as artists, challenge other artists who are often the vanguard of of displacement in certain neighborhoods in New York City and probably throughout cities in the U.S. where artists, even small artist institutions, are used often by real estate developers to pit them against longtime residents and then increase of police violence against the longtime residents. So we wanted to raise the eyebrows of art galleries who felt like they were on the defense. So like 120 art galleries at that time in 2016 all replaced these small mom and pop places in Chinatown, like bakeries and restaurants and all these small businesses that I grew up loving. We, you know, started to connect the dots and said, you know, you all have a responsibility too, right? It's the big developers, but you are also the Trojan horse, right? You're the one that raises the real estate value, brings the hipster businesses and restaurants and bars and stuff. And actually, a group of them started their own group called Art Against Displacement um, a year later after that in 2017, which was amazing. It's a mighty small group. And then, of course, we were doing projections. We did a number of workshops with Chinatown tenants. Um, we did walks, uh, cultural production exercises, right, placekeeping walks, where from all of that, the storytelling project, basically what became of it were images and videos that we projected at night. And the idea was to reach not only the gentrifiers, but really to reach out to tenants, to let them know about their rights and that they can join and there's an organization here. And I think that that became so much more vital. Of course, now you fast forward to COVID um, and um, the massive evictions that are happening. Even now with the moratorium in the Chinatowns in Brooklyn and Queens and in Manhattan, there's a huge underground housing um, economy. In other words, you have these vicious, unscrupulous landlords who are renting out to one person, and then they know in order for that one person to pay the three thousand dollars, they have to parse, they have to, they have to partition out a room to someone else, and then they sublease it to someone else, to someone else, so on and so forth. So they're living in cramped conditions, um, and oftentimes they're frontline workers, they are essential workers, um, and a lot of them are a getting sick very fast, and then b a lot of them don't qualify for relief aid, and they're not on the lease, right? So. Um, the evictions are still happening, um, and that, and also a lot of folks um, can afford not to pay because because they're so in such fragile conditions. Meaning they're not they're not protected by the sort of moratorium and all these things. If they don't pay their seven hundred a month, they're not going to stay in that that room, um, which doesn't seem like a lot to us maybe, but it's a whole lot of money for people who are unemployed right now. So it's really, really, really um, precarious right now. There are a number of buildings in Chinatown that have gone on rent strike. Pre-COVID, the conditions were pretty bad in a lot of these tenement buildings. If anything, they've gotten worse. And then folks have lost their jobs and things. So, uh, so yeah, so there, there, there are a number of places that are on rent strike. Uh, and one of the buildings, 85 Bowery, is, has been on rent strike since May 1st, and we've been supporting them and, and, and elevating the stories, uh, but that it won't save us alone, right? It has to be part of a larger organizing strategy, a larger movement. That connection between art and community, art and activism, is a long and storied one, but it isn't necessarily what appeals to people when they go to art school or, you know, who want to make it in the commercial art world will focus on. So how did that 
connection form for you? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I started up as an activist um, in, in high school. This isn't many years ago. I'm going to date myself. In the, in the mid-90s, uh, I was actually studying photography in high school at, uh, at Edward R. Murrah, which is a wonderful uh, kind of somewhat an alternative type communication school. It's a public school. So I was studying photography. And at the same time, my my older sister was getting involved in Chinatown activism. And to be honest, as a 16 year old, in my mind, I never thought Chinese folks were, you know, uh, uh, had a bone of resistance in their body. We were always told or taught, you know, pass, you know, we're passive, we're docile, we're, we just do whatever we're told and that kind of thing. And so when she first invited me out to, she was in college at the time to a protest, uh, I was super shocked. I thought I would see a bunch of white hippie activists, but there were people that looked like me, families, older people, people from the community, garment, restaurant workers at the time who were protesting, um, a, a restaurant that was paying their workers 75 cents an hour and, uh, sealing their tips. And it just woke me up to this injustice that was so widespread in Chinatown. And oftentimes, like, it's, you know, it's in, it's in plain sight, right? Their world is in plain sight, like, right in our own backyard in Chinatown. And so I got really involved in activism and organizing. My parents were garment workers. They were not making minimum wage, making, working long hours, even in the union shops. So it really infuriated me. Um, I took I, it was very personal to me. My parents were working such long hours, and me and my sisters were really robbed of time with my, our our parents because they had to work such long hours to put food on the table. So I got really involved with activism and continued to photograph. And then um, I went to college for photography, actually to NYU, and then switched to film and video. So I was very inspired. And then after college, I kind of left all the arts and media stuff for a little while. I was doing direct organizing. Um, for a couple of years and then realizing that my role is actually helping to use art and culture as a form of resistance to highlight and elevate stories of, of people who are on the front lines fighting for better living and working conditions. And so I went back to school and got my MFA and, you know, um, now working on a lot, you know, projects on my own and staying involved in the community. But I have to say that it's come a lot more full circle, more personal for me, um, since, with COVID, like I said, I had that time to really look deeper within myself and my personal story and how I'm sort of connected to a lot of these struggles. I think it's interesting that you say that because your parents have been a part of your work for a long time, for, for decades, starting in high school, which I think is a lot earlier than most of us realize. And it's certainly earlier than I realized that our parents have rich and interesting lives outside of our own teenage identities. So it strikes me that you have been addressing your family kind of all along, but I wonder how have you seen your perspective on your parents shift since you first started documenting their lives? Yeah, I have been documenting my parents for sometimes I didn't know what I was doing. I was just documenting for the sake of it because it, it's just like they're, you know, they're your family. You're just when you're a teenager, you don't understand why you're interested. Then later on, you're like, oh, that's why I'm, I'm interested in all these intersections. But I've seen them change over the years, obviously, as they get older and they become more fragile uh, health-wise, physically. But I also think that there's a point maybe, and I, I have to be honest, that there was a point um, in the 90s or, you know, when, again, you know, I, you know, and I say this uh, because it's, it's I'm very open about it. They're, they're, um, companionship or their their relationship 
was an arranged one. So they, um, this, and this is very common. And, you know, it happened really fast. And, you know, in, in the patriarchal society, Hong Kong and China, woman has to reproduce. So she, my mom got pregnant very young and, you know, had a bunch of kids. Um, and so she never really had an opportunity. And then she had to work right when she got to the States. So she re- never really had a chance of that sort of like real sort of liberation, right? She was like always, you know, the, the person who worked way harder than my dad, like working long hours in factory, coming home and feeding the kids and cleaning and all that stuff, you know, double duty, the double exploitation of women. Um, they were very alienated from each other and from us even growing up. But I would say more recently, obviously, since they've retired, even though they say they still can't stand each other. And, you know, like I told you, they've been socially distanced already for a long time. They have to have had to spend a lot of time together. My mom, her escape was often going to all my sister's uh, houses to take care of the grandchildren, see the grandchildren. And she can't do that because of COVID. So um, it's really weird because I see the two of them and my dad's health is declining. My mother is actually becoming more energetic in a way. And she wants to get out of the house all the time. Like I would call them through FaceTime. And I would see their interaction with each other. Their bantering was different. I can't explain it. Um, no longer could they escape each other in the way that they were before they have to depend on each other and they're intertwined in many ways um that they that they ordinarily would be able to kind of just kind of be in their own little respective corners um you know so there's there's that piece of it but i also think that there is a a um like a a deeper appreciation for for one another um that wasn't there for sure they won't say it ever but as they got older i think they've become uh, a little more fond of each other (laughs) Has the experience of filming your parents changed your relationship with them? Do you feel like they're more open with you as a result of all of that tape? Definitely. Uh, definitely. I think they um, are a lot more open and also a lot more honest with me. I think in the beginning, you know, they, I think they would say the things that they thought they should say on camera. And more recently, maybe because as I get older and as they get older, you know, I'm like, well, the conf- it's okay to show conflict it's okay to show you know it's a whole thing in the Chinese culture of like saving face and maybe that's every culture but saving face and like that honor and integrity is like a huge thing and that to them represents you don't cry you don't show emotion you're stoic and I encourage them I'm like you know in these interviews or when I photograph you all when you talk and I'm filming like I just want that raw I want to capture that rawness um and they've been very open and I'm super shocked when I put something out, I check in with them beforehand and they're okay with it. And maybe because they're older, they're just like, whatever. But I also explained to them that um, it's also part of my healing process because um, there's so many emotions that I have in me, like, you know, not having my parents around when I was growing up and, you know, all these things that now I have some tools to be able to understand that and to honor my parents and all the hard work they put in to put us through school and coming full circle, I really want to honor them in a way where I can also communicate to folks who are viewing this work that it's not just my story. It's not, it's not unique. It's a story of a lot of immigrants who are first generation, who are stuck in between these worlds. Um, and that, um, you know, and, and, and maybe to reach out to them to, so, so that maybe they can relate to the project and relate to, the stories. And to me, for me, it's really about making that stuff universal and, and helping people break out of their own isolation. Cause I often felt like I was very alone. 
Um, even though I was told I'm not alone, that other people are facing these similar conditions. But what I would see out there was the struggling immigrant, or I would see people like me just climbing the corporate ladder and like trying to get away from the community as much as they could. And for me, I am not a Chinese immigrant like my parents, or, but I, I was this educated Chinese American woman who wanted to use the arts and culture actually to give back to my community, to elevate what was happening and use it as a form of resistance. And so I hope in some way I'm able to project that and put that out there to other Chinese Americans, to other children of immigrants, perhaps, to challenge that. And also my parents who, you know, they've been a lot more supportive. You know, I tell them when I have shows and it's in the Chinese newspaper. One time they caught some, uh, a news story on Chinese TV about my work. And they've become proud of me. And at first, when I told them I was an artist like years ago, they're like, what is that? What are you doing? I don't understand what you're doing. And then so for weird, some weird reason, uh, they started to acknowledge and recognize that work. And my mom actually, I was like crying when she first said to me, she's like, I'm actually proud of you. You know, I like, I'm really, I understand what you're doing. Like maybe like five years ago, she's like, I'm really proud of you. I understand what you're doing. Like I didn't for a while, but I, I get it. And I, I see you, I recognize you. And like a grown ass woman, you know, just getting emotional. And I don't even think I told my mom this, but I did cry. You know, for me, in a way, it's to pay homage to them and our ancestors for all that they've done too. You know, blood or Chinese or, or, or other folks of color, or other people who, who carry on this work. We have links in the show notes to Betty Yu's work, including the photograph from Displaced in Sunset Park that we ran in our last issue, and also that documentary project that she was alluding to with her grandfather called Intimate Slash Distant. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.